0: morning again, nice to see you. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. This was uh, as part of our daily Bible reading plan that we are going through together. And uh, I believe Matthew 15 was from earlier in this week. Um, <clears throat> so, There are many confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees throughout his ministry, his three years of ministry. Um, if you've read much of the Gospels, you'll probably have come across many, many confrontations they had. and um, Generally, depending on the question, generally, there's always one issue that the Pharisees have with Jesus, and it's how are we to please God? How are we, what am I to do to please God? What does God want from me? What does God require me to do? Of course, there were other issues they had with Jesus, but so often, this is the main question. Because the Pharisees had an idea, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, is that that better? There we go. They, um, they had an idea of what to do and Jesus would come and he would preach and he would do miracles and he would eat with people and talk with people and he would say things that threw the Pharisees thinking for loop. He would say things that seemed to contradict everything they taught, everything they said you needed to do to please God, everything they said that God wanted from you, and so in Matthew 15, um, there's no other question other than this: What does God want from me? How can I please God? It's right up front in Matthew 15. There's no other question going on here. And so I want to read a little bit of this together, and then we'll kind of we'll kind of look at what is what is happening here and the thrust of Jesus's ministry. On this earth. In Matthew 15 verse 1 it says this. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem. Came to Jesus saying. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus answered and said to them. Why do you also transgress the commandments of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded saying. Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother. Let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And when he had called the multitudes to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. Now what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this, it's not not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, sorry, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Heavenly Father, we ask you to be with us this morning as we consider your word and the word of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd be with us and that you would encourage our hearts with the true message of the gospel, Lord. Make it clear to us. In your name, amen. The Pharisees were offended. Jesus had offended them. He had bothered them. He had annoyed them. I think that's interesting that so often when Jesus shares a parable or his teachings, no one seems to really understand, but in this case, the target audience knew right away what he was saying. The scribes and the Pharisees who were with Jesus this day are from Jerusalem, we learn in verse 1. So they're not just any backwoods, small time, little synagogue scribe and Pharisee. These are the cream of the crop. These are the ones who rub shoulders with those in power, and maybe some of them themselves were from the high courts. These are the Pharisees and the scribes of Jerusalem. The best shot that the religion of Judaism had to prove Jesus wrong in anything that he said. And so one day, these guys come to Jesus and they say, or they ask, a gotcha question. They come and they say, we figured out how we can disprove who Jesus is. How we can show that he is a false prophet. Because he allows his disciples... To transgress the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders is the oral law. That, that, that part of the law that is directly tied to the law of Moses. For the people of Israel, the law of Moses, starting with the Ten Commandments and then being fleshed out further in books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This was the code that the uh, Israelites lived by, that God had given his people to live by. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. Here's how you honor me. Here's how you dishonor me. Here's how you love each other. Here's how you treat each other. Here's how you have justice in your community. That was the law of God, the law of Moses, starting with the Ten Commandments and then being fleshed out, like I said, later in the Old Testament. So, the, uh, so these scribes and Pharisees, they come and they say, well, you are disciples break the tradition of the elders they break the oral law that part of the law that we have figured out how to honor God the fences we've put in place around the word of God to make sure that we're doing the right thing and honoring him and so they bring up this law that says everyone must wash their hands when they eat bread so you see what was important to the Israelites was purity In all things. And there are so many laws in the law of Moses about being physically pure, how to keep yourself pure. When you eat, when you sleep, all through your life, God told his people, here's how you can stay clean. And so these scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, we finally have him. We can prove that he is a false prophet. We can prove that he's no Messiah Because he transgresses the tradition of the elders. And what's interesting is you can just tell uh, through this question, everything they're not saying, just how evil their hearts are, how wicked their intent is, right? Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? So these guys had their own disciples, surely. These were rabbis, just like Jesus was a rabbi, right? But their disciples would have been learned men, people who were going to become the next generation of scribes and Pharisees, the next set of religious leaders. And he co- they come to Jesus, this rabbi, whose disciples are fishermen, tax collectors, some women. The, uh, the, the rabbi who's following is the common people. And they say, why do your disciples, why do you teach your disciples to transgress the tradition of the elders? And what they're saying is, Jesus, why do you break this law? Why do you break the law of Moses yourself? They don't really care about what the disciples do. They're trying to show that Jesus is a false prophet. And so Jesus, like he normally does, answers them with a question instead of an actual answer. And he says this, okay, why do I break that law? Let me ask you this, why do you break the commandment of God because of your tradition, for God commanded, saying, "Honor your father and your mother." And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. You will recognize that law from the Ten Commandments itself, right? And then he goes on and he, he 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 lays out this interesting law that you might not know about. It's called the Corbin law. You say, "Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me, is a gift." To God, then he need not honor his father and mother. So when Moses brought down the Ten Commandments, there was this one that said, all children are to honor their father and mother, not just when they're under their authority, not just in obeying them, but when you've grown, it's your duty to care for your parents. And that's what God would have you do. Well, then from the time that Moses brought that down to the time of Jesus, there had become a tradition of the elders, a part of the oral law, a fence put in place to honor God, called the Corbin Law, which said that you would vow to give um, a percentage of your wealth or a tithe of your wealth to the temple, to your local synagogue, to your local religious community. You would give that to God to honor Him. And that vow was so sacred that if your father and mother came to you and said, We need help then you, could, you should say to them, you could and you should say to them, I cannot help you, I have to give my money to God. And this was something that was practiced regularly. And so when Jesus brings it up, we read it and say, what, that doesn't make any sense to us, but when he brings it up, the scribes and the Pharisees from Jerusalem are instantly, as Peter says, offended by what Jesus said. They're not just offended because Jesus called them out for practicing man-made tradition over God's own commands, which that's his point here, right? The tradition of the elders is in no way as important as the actual commandments of God. In fact, the tradition of the elders oftentimes can lead to breaking the commands of God, especially in this case. They're not just offended that he points this out. They're offended that he calls them hypocrites, And not just any kind of hypocrites, but look, the same type of uh, Israelites as in Isaiah's day. So if you remember back to the time of Isaiah, um, the impending judgment of Babylon was coming. God had said over and over again to the people of Israel, turn from your sins, repent and follow me, and you will be spared. And Isaiah spent his life yelling that to people from inside the city and from outside the city, being chased and hunted down, trying to be silenced by the authorities. He spent his life saying to people that that they needed to turn to God. And then he says this, this is from Isaiah 23 in verse eight. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. So when, Israel, when Isaiah would yell, turn and repent, the, the wrath of God is coming. Babylon is going to come and take us away. Won't you turn and follow God? Then the response from the people of Israel and the religious leaders of the day was, Isaiah, we love God. We do everything he tells us to do, and then some. We do everything he's told us to do, And we do even more. And Isaiah says, your heart is far from God. So you you see the picture here. It's probably not something that surprises you about the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of the day. Those who came against Christ and his message. It's no surprise, right, that these people um, are whitewashed tombs. That's how Jesus describes them in another gospel How on the outside, they look like they truly do love God. But on the inside, they're dead graves with decaying corpses inside. And so this type of religion, this type of Judaism, was the standard of the day in which Jesus stepped in to preach the gospel He came to a people who were being crushed under the weight of legalism and tradition over and above the direct commands of God. In fact, it was so bad that when Jesus said so many times, here's the gospel, here's what God wants for you, here's what you're supposed to do, here's what I'm going to do as the Messiah, so many people looked at him and said, I don't understand what you're talking about. Jesus was so other to these people because their view of God was so skewed because of the traditions that had been set up, because of the legalism within their hearts. They thought to honor God, I have to do this, 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 and this. I have to sacrifice this way. I have to sacrifice this thing at this time. I have to say this thing. I have to do that thing. And once I have all my boxes checked, then God is happy with me. Well, the thing is, the Pharisees and the scribes continued to expand the tradition of the elders, continued to expand those boxes so that eventually there was nothing you could ever do to keep their law, much less keep God's holy law. And so that's the situation that Jesus points out. And so I think it's funny when Peter comes and says, wow, Jesus... You know you offended those guys, right? And I bet Jesus just kind of chuckled and said, yeah, I hope I did. He goes on to say in verse 13, Jesus answered and said, listen, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And Peter said, I don't get it. What do you See, even Peter doesn't understand because what he has been taught all his life about what God wants for him is to meet a certain expectation of his own works. And so Jesus said, are you still without understanding? After we've been walking together so long, after I've shown you so many things, after I've taught you so many things, do you still not understand what God wants from you? Don't you get it? Here's what it means. Whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. God is concerned and interested in our hearts, where our hearts stand, what our hearts do. Because you can wash your hands before you eat Every time you eat for the rest of your life, and that's not gonna in any way ever bring you into a relationship with God or get you to heaven or deal with your actual dirty sin problem, which is also located in your heart. Jesus so many times had to remind these people that the heart is the issue. It's not about what you do, you can't do enough good to get right with God. And that's the tradition of the elders. And I don't want to say that everything that the, uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders came up with was in any way malicious. Some things were, certainly. But out of a heart to do right before God, the people of Israel started to add their own commands, started to add their own traditions, started to add their own fences to the word of God, saying, well, in order to fulfill what God would have us do, we think it's best to do this. And so there were, I, I, I believe, good in, intentions, but it became, as everything does on this cursed earth, it became something twisted and evil that was crushing the people of God. And so they didn't even know what their own God wanted from them. So what I want to do is I want to show you from the Old Testament why this, what Jesus said isn't anything new. Right. Sometimes we think that when we get to the New Testament or, or you'll hear people say this, that God is now a God of love or, or God cares uh, about grace and mercy much more in the New Testament than he ever did in the Old Testament. or Well, now that Jesus showed up, now it all makes sense. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that God, from the beginning of his word, has always told people, his people, and anyone willing to listen, exactly what he desires. And it's not a checklist. It's not a set of works. It's not... The tradition of the elders and in fact it's not even because we can't and I'll show you why it's not even his own law his own law was to show us our great need for Christ so let's take a, let's we're going to transition a little bit from Matthew and I want to show you that Jesus isn't saying anything new but God has been saying this to his people from the beginning, that what God wants from you is your heart. He wants you to love him with everything in your being and obey him out of love and thankfulness for what he's done, not out of an obligation to meet any sort of requirements. Uh, just for reference, by Jesus' day, and this number has is up for debate. It's not exactly... Um, agreed upon everywhere, but there's roughly 613 commands that the people, that the Israelites are supposed to, um, are supposed to follow 613 commands. Most of those are found within the law of Moses. And some of those are also considered the tradition of the elders, the oral law, those things put in place um, to help, uh, to help define how people should act and so if you can imagine that you here you have to uh, you have to obey perfectly 613 commands every day of your life um, you can understand why people are so crushed and hopeless and that their view of God is that if I don't meet this demand well then he could never love me we could never be in a relationship and I have no hope so what am I to do And then when someone like Jesus comes around and starts saying, well, wait a second, it's not about the letter of the law. It's not about that checklist because you can't. It's not about that. It's about something different. You can imagine why people were shocked and why religious leaders were offended. But we have to go back to the basics to understand what's going on here. So we need to consider God's law from the time he gave it to Moses and then we have to consider what God has said about the desire for your heart. So, uh, in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel have come out of, e- out of slavery, out of Egypt, and they have been led to Mount Sinai. And God is making a covenant with his people. And he sends his representative, Moses, up to the mountain to meet with him, and he's given um, the 10 commandments, the basis of the law of Moses. And you know them, you don't have to read them or go over them, or you know most of them probably. But the society of the people of God, the community of the people of God was to be based around God's law, what became known as the law of Moses. And so there are four things to consider the law of God, because it can sound, and oftentimes we talk about the law of God in a way that is, um, it could be, could be negative, but God didn't give his people something um, negative. He gave them something good. It just so happens that our sin gets in the way and messes everything up. The law of God was given, the law of Moses was given to reveal the character of God. And so if you read the Ten Commandments, You'll see that God cares about justice. You'll see that God cares about mercy. You'll see that God cares about righteousness, that God cares about community, that God cares about relationships, personal relationships, relationships with him and his people, relationships among his people. You'll see that God cares about sin and that it's dealt with correctly. It was to reveal the character of God. And then if you read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, You'll also notice over and over again what kind of a God the people of Israel serve. So, one purpose for God's law was to reveal the character of God, another was to set Israel apart from all the other nations. They were to be very different, even so far as to what they wore, whether or not they had tattoos, things like that, what they ate, how they ate it. All these things were to make Israel different from every other nation. Showing that they wanted to serve their God. A third thing that the law of God does, or did, the law of Moses, was it provided a way of worship for the people. They knew how to interact with their God. They knew what God expected of them. In the Psalms and, and in and several other books, um, it says that God desires this kind of a worshiper. It, it lists what he wants from his people how they can approach him what it takes and what they need to do to deal with their sin that's a part of worship too is not just the praise of God but the dealing of the sin in their lives and so it lists over and over again all the different ways to sacrifice who can come into the presence directly into the presence and where everyone else needs to stay all of these things And there are several other things, but ultimately, the law of God, and this is how it applies to you and I, and the law of Moses reveals our need for Jesus. In Galatians 3.24 and in Romans 10.4, Paul says to Christians, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, he says, listen, the law of God, the law of Moses, you would never be able to keep it perfectly because of your sin. And the point is, it was a teacher. The point isn't it wasn't it is not for you to say, at the end of your life or at the end of a day, say, okay, I finally have obeyed every single command in the law of God. It's not possible. It's a teacher, or a tutor, as some translations say, to bring us to our need for Jesus. The law of God is so vast and so holy that we look at it and say, I could never fully keep it all. And in Matthew, same book as we're in, back in Matthew 5, Matthew tells us, Jesus himself tells us, he says, I have come to fulfill the law for you. So when Jesus says something like that and the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day hear someone come and say, He's going to fulfill the law. I assume some of their offenses, they look at their life and say, well, we could never do it. How could this man think he could ever keep the law of God? I mean, who knows better what it takes to please God than the scribes and the Pharisees? And when Jesus comes and says, don't worry about the letter of the law, I've come to fulfill that for you, then their entire I guess religious empire theological paradigm is turned on its head. And so the good news about the law of God is not that it should be a crushing weight on your neck, but that it should point you to Christ, showing that God himself made a way to fulfill his law for sinners. And what that is showing us is it wasn't until Jesus stepped onto the scene that God was saying, listen, it's all about your heart, it's all about having faith in Christ, and it's not about the letter of the law. What the law should also point us to, and it should have been pointing the scribes and the Pharisees, and Peter and John, and all of the Israelites from day one, it should have been pointing them to this fact, that to please God, he wants your heart. It's something he has always desired. Well, what is the heart? In ancient Hebrew thinking, the heart is many different things. Number one, it's an organ, uh, the physical organ that keeps your body going. From 1 Samuel 25, 37, we read that. They understood the vitality of your actual physical heart. But they have no concept of a brain or a word for brain. So everything that we think of as heart and mind and soul all together, they are all putting in as heart. So when you read the word heart... In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you're reading about the thoughts of people. Deuteronomy 8.5 and Job 17. The heart is where your thoughts happen. Your emotions, both good and bad, 1 Samuel 1.8 and other places. Uh, If you are a joyful person, it says you're good of heart. And our hearts are broken. That's from ancient Hebrew literature. We still say that type of thing today. But your emotions are found in your heart. Your thoughts are found in your heart. Your heart keeps your physical body alive, and your desires and your choices, those things you do based on what you believe, are found in your heart. Psalm 37 says that, and Proverbs 4 teaches that as as well. So for the ancient Israelite, and for the Israelite even in Jesus' day, the heart is one of the, the most important thing about you. It's your complete self. And so I want to share a couple of passages. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to share them. And I want you to decide whether or not you think God has always cared about the heart of his people or whether he's actually wanted people to meet the checklist of the law. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says this. So Deuteronomy is smack dab in the middle of expounding upon the law of Moses, right? We had the Ten Commandments, and now here's what every facet of life, here's how you apply those Ten Commandments to every facet of your life. And here's even more things to do. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live do you think God cares about the heart of his people or do you think he cares about their performance? In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says this, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Do you think God cares about the heart more than your performance to earn his love In 1 Samuel, uh, yes, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel says this, "Has, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of God? Does God care more? Is he more pleased when you offer those sacrifices, you keep the letter of the law? Is he more pleased when you do that or when you obey his voice? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Uh, In Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, it says this. This is a quote from God. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And what's interesting is in Matthew, Jesus twice references Hosea 6, 6, when he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and they challenge him on what God wants from his people, what kind of a servant God desires. And they say, isn't it the servant who keeps the law? Isn't it the servant who makes the right sacrifices? Isn't it the servant who makes a vow to give their tithe to the house of God and the ministry of God, and even stays on that path when their parents call them up and say, we can't make our rent this week, can you help us? And they say, no, I do not have to honor you over honoring God. And Jesus says to them, when they ask those types of questions, he says, I wish you would learn Hosea 6.6 and what it means. I wish you would learn what God has said from the very beginnings of our nation. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And in one of those passages, he says, go and learn that. Go and learn that God has not been about keeping his law perfectly has not been about servants who worship him with their lips and care nothing about them with their heart but simply check the boxes off to feel good about themselves or to hopefully earn his love. He's never been about that. Deuteronomy six five. this is... Um, This is one that if Jesus had brought it up that day in Matthew 15, everybody probably would have looked and go, oh, now I get what you're talking about. Deuteronomy 6.5 is the Shema, and it is something that the children of Israel, the nation of Israel for generations have repeated to themselves every day. It was to be something that families said when they got up or when they went to bed or any other time, but together they were to say this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We could do a whole nother sub-sermon on on that and what that means and how that is the basis for what Jesus is talking about when it says heart, soul, and strength, But the idea is this, God, from the beginning of time, when he looked down at his creation and saw the sinfulness of man, still desired to have a relationship with them, chose to fulfill his own law, which separated them, and asks for the heart of his people in return. Let me just end with this. If you look a little bit further in Matthew 15, look at verse 21. There is a illustration. I don't know how soon after Jesus talks to the scribes and Pharisees this takes place. I don't know if those guys were still following along with him. I don't know if they heard this. But whatever, it doesn't matter because Peter and the disciples were present for this next encounter. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from the region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. So just picture this. Jesus goes to enemy territory of the Jewish people. And a woman of Canaan, so a Canaanite, a bitter, bitter generational enemy of the people of God, of Jews like Jesus and David and, and, uh, David, yeah, David, G- Peter and John and, uh, and those guys and his disciples. This woman, a Canaanite, comes up and she asks Jesus for help. And notice what she says, O Lord, son of David. Son of David is a, Term a royal term that the people like the scribes and the Pharisees would understand that Jewish people would understand. It's a term given to the Messiah, and so isn't it strange that a Canaanite, not part of that that community, not part of that religion, comes and understands exactly who Jesus is? And she says, "Will you help me? My daughter is severely demon possessed." So I want you to notice a couple of responses here. Notice Jesus's three responses the disciples one response and finally this Gentile woman's, this enemy of the Jewish people enemy of the Jewish God and finally look at her response she asked for help and in verse 23 it says this Jesus answered her not a word meaning he didn't say anything he just I don't know if he looked at her if he just kept walking didn't say anything well, then she says, uh, th- then she, she, uh, in 25, she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me, in verse 25. She worshiped him. I guess that means she got down on her hands and knees begging that the Messiah of God would help her. And he answered her in verse 26. Finally, he says something to her. He says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And this is a, uh, this is something that she would have understood. And everyone listening would have understood. Uh, It was common in Jewish culture to equate Gentiles with dogs, and dogs are the lowest form of life in the Jewish mind there could be. I mean, shepherds are even higher than dogs, barely. But dogs are the worst of life. And Jesus says, it's not good that I take the children's bread. It's not good that I take the gospel and the hope of Christ And the the hope of God, and I take it from Israel, who I've come to give them the message first. It's not good that I give take uh, take what I have for them, and if I throw it to you. And her response is, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now, go back and note the disciples' response real quick before this encounter is over. In verse 23, after Jesus didn't say anything to her, and then he said, well, I shouldn't give you what's reserved for the children of Israel since you're not one of them. I shouldn't give you the gospel. I shouldn't give you that hope. You don't deserve that. The disciples came and they urged him saying, I mean, (laughs) they do this every time. They came and they said, Jesus, get rid of her. Get her out of here. Shut her up. We can't have someone like this around us. I have a suspicion that some of the tradition of the elders and the oral law probably had hard division lines between Jew and Gentile who could partake of the Lord and who was not ever allowed. So after she's rebuffed by the disciples and Jesus himself, in 27, she says, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. I mean, she's basically describing herself here, saying, listen, I know that I'm your bitter enemy. I know I am not worthy to receive the grace of God. I have, there's nothing about me that should ever let God's love be given to me but I also know who your God is. I mean, she knows Jesus is the son of David. She knows he's the Messiah. She worships him as God. She must know something about this God through stories, through history, through other people she's met. I don't know how she knows, but this woman's full heart is given to God. And Jesus answers and says this. And he only says this, you'll recognize this phrase, but he only says it very few times, and honestly, it's never about his own people. Those who should have known better, those who should know what God really desires, he says this about the Gentiles. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as your desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. I don't think Jesus was ever not going to help this Woman, I think he's making a point. And I only say that because I don't think there's an, it's an accident that the teaching in the beginning of verse 15 precedes this story. I think it's very much on purpose that we have this illustration. Because what is being said in verses 21 and following is that this woman who deserves no love from God, grace or mercy from him, because she's never kept the law perfectly. She hates, she was born divided against those who are God's people. It is her birthright to hate God, the God of Israel. She comes and she falls on her knees and she says, my only hope is the one true God and the Messiah, Jesus Christ, my heart is yours. And Jesus says, that is greater faith than the scribes and the Pharisees who have kept the law. Because God doesn't desire you to check a list or check a box or to worship him with your mouth and move along. So you can say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. He wants your heart. Will you give that to him today? What do you need to look through in your life? What traditions do you need to that maybe you've set up in your life? What things have you elevated to the word of God, what do you need to look at and say, I need to stop doing those things and I need to start giving my heart fully to the Lord. That's what's required for those who don't know him and for those who do know him. It doesn't matter where you stand with Jesus, it's required that we give him our full heart from when we wake up to when we go to bed. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, this opportunity to come to your house and to worship with your servants. Father, the opportunity to look at your word together, to learn from Jesus himself. Father, I pray that like that Gentile Canaanite woman, we would also realize our need to give you our full hearts, that obedience to God is not about checking boxes. It's about a deep, true love and gratitude for what you've done for us, for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, for making it possible for us to be your children. So, Father, let us never live like we don't love you or pretend that we love you Father, let us truly give you our hearts. Show us how to do that every day, in every area, Lord, how we can truly honor you in what you tell us to do. We thank you and we love you. In the name of Christ, amen.